Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is God's word for today. Thank you, Christy. All right, would you please pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you again that we have this, uh, these letters and these texts that you have left to your church to help guide us in the way that we should live our lives and know what it means to be your people. Uh, Lord, we ask this morning that as we spend time uh, uh, thinking through uh, these set of verses that you would speak to us uh, and help us to gain a clarity about what it means to be your people living in this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We live in a loveless world. Uh, whether you are in the cultural, political left or right, uh, we know this to be true, right? Uh, trial by Twitter, cancellation, uh, public shaming, uh, this is the reality of our world. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not here to tell you that every single person uh, in the world uh, does all these horrible things. There are lots of good things that people do that follow Jesus and that don't follow Jesus. There are lots of good things that are being done in the world. And social media has uh, allowed wrongs that have for too long been covered up uh, to be exposed and brought to the light uh, in ways that they have needed to be brought to the light. But if we take an honest assessment, we know that uh, the trends tend towards uh, a society that is increasingly polarized and at odds 
with each other. We live in a loveless world. And so the question for us this, that we're going to reflect on this morning is what does it look like for us as God's people? What does it look like for those of us who claim to follow Jesus to live in that world? What, what is the guidance that John has for this group of Christians living in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, thousands of years ago that speaks to us today uh, as well? Uh, when we were looking earlier in the year, we were looking at the ministry of Peter in the book of Acts. And when I was working our way through that section, I introduced you all, introduced or reintroduced some of you to the concept of Christendom. Uh, remember that word, Christendom, big fancy word. So Christendom is this period of time in which uh, Christianity and the church had uh, the, the, the privileged position in society where Christianity and the church had the cultural sway that the voice of the church, at least in Western society, was the dominant voice. Uh, Dermot McCulloch, who is an Oxford historian, uh, says that Christendom is the union between Christianity and secular power. Uh, Christendom began in 313 A.D., when Constantine, who was then the Roman emperor, made Christianity the legal religion of the Roman Empire. Before that, Christianity was really a, a kind of a marginalized group of people, and depending on who was the emperor, uh, Christians were being killed pretty, uh, pretty freely. Uh, but when Constantine comes to faith in Jesus and he makes Christianity the official religion, all of a sudden now, Christianity found itself in this really unique cultural position where it was at the seat of power. Uh, and so what happens in the West is then for the next several hundred years, a millennia, uh, Christianity was in this privileged position. Now, uh, there are lots of debates about when Christendom ended. Uh, there are lots of disagreements, you know, was it here, was it there? But what, very, what everybody agrees on, Christian and non-Christian, what everybody agrees on is that we are now in a post-Christendom age, uh, that Christendom no longer has the privileged position, the privileged voice that it once had. Now, the, the tension that we feel, especially uh, in the United States, and then even more so in certain geographical pockets of the United States, is that we look around and the influence of Christianity is still pretty dominant. Uh, the, the lingering effects, right? And so you think of, you know, probably most of you, as you think about that, you're thinking, oh, yeah, the, you know, the South, right? But, but, you know, I've been in San Diego for two years, and Christianity has a lot of influence in Southern California in a way that it doesn't in cities like San Francisco or Portland or Seattle uh, or, you know, I most recently came from Boston. But Christianity doesn't have the kind of cultural sway in those cities as it does in places like San Diego. And it can be really tempting for us to want to get that back. It can be really tempting for us to feel like, oh, we don't have the, the power that we once had and we need to do what we can to get it back. Uh, and uh, I'll be honest with you, like I'm not sure that that's a good idea. Uh, because what I've seen in looking at scripture is that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, Jesus was not trying to seek political power. Uh, and that's what the way that he offered to us. And isn't it fascinating that when you look at the history of Christianity, 
that the church always seems to be at its best when it's operating at the margins, when it's not in the seats of power. Uh, So the challenge then that we face, just kind of get real practical, the challenge that we face is that we are following Jesus vocationally in your jobs, in ministry, uh, in all these different avenues. We are following Jesus in a post-Christendom era. We're following Jesus in this period of time where we're on, on the other side of this huge influence that Christianity has had. And the tension that the church in the West, the church in the United States, uh, and even uh, Harbor City as a local congregation, the tension that we feel is that it is easy for some of us to think we're still operating in this Christendom mindset and doing life and ministry in this Christendom mindset. And then there are others of us that are recognizing that we're in this post-Christendom Mindset, And so you can imagine, right, there, those are two very different ways of doing life and ministry. And I think that it's fair to say that one of the real tension points that we have is when you see something, you, somebody does something or says something, and you're like, I can't believe they said that. It oftentimes part of the reason, not the whole reason, part of the reason is we're looking at the context of ministry from different vantage points. The reason that the writings of the New Testament are so helpful for us is because John is writing in a pre-Christendom context. John is writing in a period of time where the church didn't have cultural power, didn't have the privileged position. Uh, It was an ostracized sect within Judaism. That's how people saw it. And so looking at the writings of the New Testament is really helpful for us because the writings of the New Testament actually show us the principles in which the Christians in the early church sought to follow Jesus, and there's a lot of transference for us today. And I think this particular passage here that we're looking at in 1 John is one of those passages that just kind of screams for us to do this kind of cultural analysis and application of Scripture. So what we're going to do today is I don't have points, uh, but I've got four hooks that are going to guide us through four sections of the passage that I want to land on as we move our way through. What does it look like to love in a loveless world? That's what we're going to consider. What does it look like to love in a loveless world? So the first thing is this principle, love one another. This is what John says right at the beginning. Um, This is the message you have heard from the beginning that you should love one another. Now, Why does John say this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that you should love one another? Who said that first? Jesus. And so, come on, you just like confident in your answers. Jesus said that, right? Remember John 13? A new commandment I give to you, love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the first time in John's letter that he uses the phrase love one another, but it's not the first time that John talks about love. He's already talked about love back in chapter 2. Remember what we said about John? What does John like to do? He likes to talk in circles, right? He's going to say something, and then he's going to come back to it later, and he's going to give you a little bit more, and then he's going to come back to it again. And so now he's giving us a little bit more, right? He's giving us a little bit more. Uh, 
Michael Bird is an Australian uh, theologian who says this. He says, love is the norm by which our behavior is measured. Love is the norm. Love is the ethical standard. This command to love one another appears 14 times that I found in the New Testament. All of the, can you show me the next slide? um, Most of the New Testament authors at one point or another make reference to Jesus' teaching about loving one another. That's how important this teaching is for the life of God's people. And so in our particular passage, John says this. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought, circle, underline, exclamation points around that word, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There's an obligation. There is a debt. Michael Bird, who I just referenced a second ago, has this great thought experiment. He says, imagine, kids, I want you to imagine this, right? Your mom and dad, they come to you and they say to you, here's my, my bank card, here's my debit cards connected to my bank account. Go crazy. Spend whatever you want to spend. Go buy whatever it is that you want to buy, right? You would have a lot of fun, wouldn't you? Yes? Faye, come on. You would be like, let's go. Um, adults, if somebody came to you and said, hey, here's my bank card, spend whatever you want to spend, no limit, it's going to be covered, I bet all of us could very quickly come up with a few things and be like, yes, please. Jesus has deposited in the bank of your heart his endless love. There is no limit. And what he says to you is that you have an obligation. He's giving you his MasterCard, uh, and he's saying you have an obligation to go crazy. Spend it. Just go. Show love. You're never going to exceed the limits of my love. This is what it means to love one another. Think about how often we're like, uh, no, Jesus says, no, give it freely away. Give it freely away. So that's the principle. But the problem that we have is that we live in a loveless world. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Um, Some of us may not be familiar with the story of Cain and Abel. It's found in Genesis chapter 4. So uh, what happens is that this is right after Adam and Eve um, are are removed from the garden. And uh, both Cain and Abel bring sacrifices to the Lord. Cain brings a sacrifice of fruits and vegetables. Abel brings a sacrifice from his flocks. Uh, Now, it would take way too long, and it is honestly not 100% clear to, for us to understand why what happens next happens. But what happens next is that the Lord accepts and shows favor to Abel's sacrifice, and he doesn't show favor towards Cain's sacrifice. And Cain is not happy. The Lord approaches Cain. He comes towards Cain. He moves towards Cain and confronts him and calls him uh, to trust. He says, he says to him, like, like, if you do good, 
for how exactly. I'd need to go back. I don't remember. But he, he basically, he invites Cain to trust him even though the Lord didn't accept his sacrifice in the same way that he accepted Abel's sacrifice. But Cain, instead of moving towards the Lord in repentance, moves towards his brother in hate and murders him. And so from the very beginning of the story, right, what we see is that there is this rivalry between the righteous and the unrighteous. Abel is personification of righteousness, and Cain is personification of unrighteousness. And so John is taking this principle that goes back to the beginning of time, and he's applying it to our passage, and he says this, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. This is where bringing in that Christendom idea is super helpful, right? Because what, what happened in Christendom is that the, the ethical, the moral teaching of Christianity became the dominant way in which society was governed. Not the only way, okay? So it's not to say that everybody agreed with every aspect of Jesus' teaching and the ethical teaching of the New Testament. It's not even to say... This is important. It's not even to say that the church always got right the ethical teaching of the Bible, right? We look back and we see the way that, um, that we see slavery, the way women have been, the way that ancient writers would talk about women, and we look back on that today and we're like, yeah, no, that's not from the Bible. But yet people who trusted in Jesus did and said really horrible things. So it's not to say that it was perfect, but... What we do know uh, is that the whole, I think I talked about this a few weeks ago, right? The very concept of human rights, which is so central to how we think about our society, would not exist if it wasn't for the teaching of Jesus. It's not how the ancient world thought. And so during Christendom, these ethical norms begin to take place. They begin to be rooted. They begin to form our society. But now in a post-Christendom world, right, more and more people are rejecting those ethical norms. They're rejecting the teaching of Jesus. And so a couple of examples, right? The ethical norm, the teaching of Christianity with regards to sexuality teaches that sex is good, sex is fun. Sex is great, sex is pleasurable, sex is for marriage. And that marriage is for one man and one woman. Uh, and so what happens is that in our society, people hear that teaching and they say, that's repressive, that's bigoted, that's backwards, that's completely out of step with our enlightened society. Uh, on the same, in a, in a similar vein, right? The, the ethical norm, the ethical teaching, the moral teaching of Scripture when it comes to justice, right, is that, ju that God's people are called to love the poor and to move towards repair and restoration of the things that have been broken by the evil in our world, both systems of evil that permeate our society as well as the individual evils that a person may act out on. And yet in our society, there are those who hear that and they say, oh, that's just a bunch of woke socialism. And so what Christianity says is, no, 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 no. Like, we're, we're not in this back and forth. This is the teaching of Jesus. This is, these are the ethical norms that guide the way that we live. But from the outside, people look at different aspects of Jesus' teaching, the different ways of the teaching that the church holds on to and say, no. 
and in the worst uh, cases of it, right? Hateful. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. And then how we respond really matters in those situations, right? Do we respond in love? Remember the principle, love one another. And then that gets applied into love your neighbor and love your enemies. And to the degree that we show love, we're following Jesus. And the degree that we are not showing love, we fail to live out Jesus' teaching. But the problem isn't just out there. The problem isn't just that uh, people out there are not showing love towards us, and so then we respond with a lack of love. The problem is also <laughs> that we don't love each other very well. So John goes on to say, anyone who hates his brother or sister. So here's talking to Christians. Remember last week we, we saw that uh, God calls us children, right? So now he's taking that family of God language and he's saying anybody who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Who is the murderer? Who is he talking about here? Who is the murderer? Cain, right? Anybody who hates her brother or sister is just like Cain. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. If you, if you like follow pastor blogs... <laughs> I know probably most of you do not follow pastor blogs, uh, but if you follow pastor blogs, if you listen to uh, podcasts that talk about like kind of cultural analysis of where the church is at, um, it, it's pretty much everybody agrees at this point that the leadership of the church, us, right, who are leaders in the church, have failed you because for too long we did not do the job of disciple-making that we needed to do. Uh, and so what ended up happening is instead of, of the church being formed by the teaching of Scripture, the church was formed by whatever kind of cultural pockets you happen to land in, whether those are the, the left cultural pockets or the right cultural pockets, because we all find ourselves in a cultural pocket. We all find ourselves influenced by different groups of voices. This is why, as a church, like, you know, I came here and people were like, hey, what do you care about? I was like, look, I care about discipleship. Like, that's, that's my jam. That's who I am. I am a one-trick pony in that respect. Uh, and so, over the last two years, what have we done? We started Bible studies, right? Because we need to be engaging with the teaching of Scripture. We started cultural conversations. Why? Because I know that you all are facing different cultural issues and that CNN and Fox and whatever other media outlet of choice you have, they're more than happy to tell you how you should think about these things. And 99% of the time, they're not taking the teaching of Jesus into consideration. And you know what, Jesus, you know, he's got something to say. Uh, and so the cultural conversation is the venue in which we get together, we read something, we engage with an idea, we come together and say, okay, as Christians, how do we talk about this issue? As Christians, how do we think about this issue? Even if at the end of the day we disagree, what we're doing is we're rooting it in a Christian understanding of reality. That's why we have Sunday school, right? Because we recognize that the Christian life isn't just up here, uh, as much as I would like for it to be, um, but that the Christian life is a lived experience, right? And so then we say, hey, let's talk about hospitality. 
Let's talk about money. Let's talk about how to actually study the Bible because we recognize that living the Christian life takes effort and work, right? So that's not like, that's not just like, oh, Omar likes to fill the calendar. Uh, no, that's an intentional movement on our part to say, hey, we, we, the church messed up over here and we have to fix it. And these are the steps to begin to say, this is how Harbor is seeking to form followers of Jesus to live in a post-Christendom world. I'm showing you my hand. I actually believe that this is the way that we need to do ministry, right? So now, um, so we see the principle, love one another. We see the problem. We live in a loveless world. Then John gives us some direction. He says, love one another like this. He says, Jesus laid down his life for you. Loving one another is laying our lives down for one another. John is the only one who uses this phrase. We only find it in the teaching, in the writings of John. So in the Gospels and in his letters, I think it might appear one time in the book of Revelation. And when he uses this phrase, love one another, he uses it in one of two ways. Uh, lay, I'm sorry, laying, laying your life down, forgive me. When he uses the phrase laying your life down, he uses it in one of two ways. With reference to Jesus, laying your life down has to do with his death on the cross. Uh, with reference to you and me, laying our lives down has to be with the sacrificial manner of life with which we live. And here in this particular passage, John is bringing these two ideas together and saying they're, they're linked. You can't separate them. In the same way that Jesus laid his life down by dying on the cross for our sin, we are called to lay our lives down by putting to death our privilege, our preferences, by putting to death our own needs and prioritizing the needs of others. Remember Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, but John says it's one thing to say that. It's fine to say that. But there's a saying, maybe you've heard of it, actions speak louder than words. And so what John is saying is actions speak louder than words, y'all. It's one thing to say, oh, yeah, we love one another. It's one thing to sing. They will know we are Christians by our love. But it's another thing to actually be a people that do that hard work of loving one another. It's a completely different thing to live that out. And so what does that look like at Harbor, right? At Harbor, what we've said is like, hey, we want to do this seriously. We're not perfectly, but we're going to do this seriously. So when it comes to the ethical teaching of justice, right, we believe that the scriptures teach that God calls us to be a people who seek justice and that that means that we care for the poor, we care, we acknowledge the systemic problems that our society and the individual things that people do and we try to, we try to step into the messiness of that and serve Jesus, right? So we just had day of service. Show me my day of service picture. We had, I had the, the super fun, we went to the San Diego Rescue Mission, it was me and my two sons, and the Cobbles, uh, Scott, Nancy, and Seth, and Laurel. And we had a great time, and, and got like a front eye view to seeing, the picture's not working, uh, man, there, there we are, don't we look great? Um, we had a front eye view of like walking with people, and like, like somebody said something to me that just kind of blew my mind, right? How many of you all, how many of you all, can you resonate with this, right? You're feeling gross. It's been like, oh, you're just kind of grimy. And you take a shower and you feel like a new person. Some of you are lying. 
or maybe you need to take more showers. I don't know. But think about that from the perspective of someone who doesn't have a place to shower. Think about that from the perspective of someone who is living on the street. It was a profound experience to see somebody to walk with them toward the shower and introduce them to the people that were, and then see them as they were walking out and like literally look like a new person. Uh, sexuality. We teach that sex is good. Sex is great. It's beautiful, right? But it's for marriage. Uh, and that marriage is for one man and one woman. And so then we walk with people, right? People come to us and say, hey, I'm dealing with this particular aspect of sexual brokenness in my life, right? We walk with you in that privately. We walk with you in those areas. Why? Because there's a beautiful story that God has given to us. As a church, we seek to be a place that has a diversity of opinions, right? We recognize that, that holding the tension that we have people that land in different places on certain cultural hot buttons is hard and that there's a tension that we dwell, that we have to like inhabit when we find ourselves there. And we're not always going to get it right, right? Sometimes we'll put emphasis on one side over the other side. Sometimes it will feel like the emphasis is too much on one side versus the other side or not at all on one side versus the other side. I'm not saying we, we I'm not going to tell you, hey, we got it perfectly. But what I am going to tell you is that's what we're striving for as a church. That's the kind of people we're striving to be, right? People who follow Jesus and we're centered on the central teachings of Jesus and then on those things that are secondary and tertiary. We're like, look, we're going we're gonna to go back to the central things, and we're going to stay in the central thing. And then we can, have, we can have robust conversations about the secondary and tertiary things. We should. We have to, right? Because we have to do that work of refining one another as iron sharpens iron. Okay. So then that's the direction, right? Laying your life down, right? Laying your life down means giving yourself away, putting ourselves to death like Jesus did, putting our desires, our privilege, all these things together. All right. Now, we're not going to get it right. We're not going to get it right. And when we don't get it right, it's really easy for us to beat ourselves up. Be like, oh, I cannot believe I did that. At least it's easy for me. John is so kind because John ends by saying this. He's like, if our hearts condemn us, so this is the, uh, the encouragement, the encouragement. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus and love one another as he commanded. Isn't that amazing? He like brings together faith in Jesus and loving one another. He says, look, do you want to know what the command is? This is the command. They're linked. Like you can't, like he's like, they're not separated. Faith in Jesus, loving one another, integrally connected. Now, here's the reality. Like we're not going to get it all right, right? And so some of us are probably on the, you know, everybody kind of like, we have different uh, temperaments, right? And so some of us, when we, when we don't live up to these expectations, right, it's, it's really easy for us to beat ourselves up. Like, oh, I'm such a failure. And, 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 and what John is saying is that, that the Lord of heaven and earth speaks a better word. 
to you than the condemnation that your heart wants to sell you, than the lies that the enemy will want to sell you, saying, ah, you're no good, you're a mess up, you're a failure, you're not really a follower of Jesus. And God says, no, 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 no. I've washed you, you're mine. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt trip here, but there is a hard and necessary pointing us to what it means to follow him. And and in a post-Christendom world, this is the kind of ethic I think we need to live out. Where we are unashamed in how we stand on the authority of the Bible. We make no apologies, right, about the teaching of Jesus. But we're nice. We're kind. We're loving. Right? Where, where love is the thing that permeates who we are. I think that that's what San Diego needs. San Diego needs the gospel. Right? Our neighbors need Jesus. But in order for them to hear about Jesus, they have to see in us a love that like completely defies logic. And guess what? We get to work that out here first as a church. And that's hard. It's not easy. And we're not always going to get it right. Um, but here's the thing. We can't do it together. I mean, so we can't do it by ourselves. We have to do it together. Totally not what I was trying to say. <laughs> you all are on your own. Um, no, what I meant to say was we have to do it together. We can't do it alone. Right? Harbor City Church is not going to be the kind of church that I think, I think all of us want. Right? A church that lives in these tensions a church that is seeking to really be intentional about how we think about ministry, a church that's in the city, loving the city, caring for the needs of people, is, am I wrong? Is that what we want? I think that's what we want, right? Guess what? Like, it's not going to happen if Omar just gets up and talks about it once a week, right? It's not going to happen if just a few people are like, all of us have to be 100% in, and when we, that happens, holy smokes, y'all. Like what Jesus can do will be amazing. We're just here, just the way that we will care for each other here will be amazing. And, I mean, I think we're on the way. Like, I'm not preaching the sermon to, like, you know, whip, you know, whip you and be like, oh, you all stink, you're not doing this. Like, I'm saying, like, this is what John wants, and I, I kind of think we're on the way. And that's an amazing thing. Um, all right. Jesus calls us to love in a loveless world. Let me pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we, um, we want to follow you. We want to be your people. We want to love well. We want to... Um, we want to be the kind of people that are known for love, not just because we sing about it and talk about it, but because uh, of the way that we disagree and because of the way that we serve and because of the way that we care uh, for people who are like us and people who are not like us.
that that is just something that completely boggles the mind. We know that uh, you've called us to serve you, to follow you, to love you, and to love one another. Thank you that Jesus laid his life down for us and that Jesus is the one that fills our hearts with love as we put our faith in him and makes it possible for us to live lives of love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's stand and sing.